0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Underground Meats,
1: undergroundmeats.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on a kind of sunny but cold winter day. You're tuned into The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. We've got another jam-packed show for you today. At the top of the show, we're going to be speaking with Todd Erling. Todd is the Executive Director of the Hudson Valley Agribusiness Development Corporation, and we're going to learn a little bit more about his work and some kind of recent announcements from the Cuomo's office. And then in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Larissa Walker. She is the Pollinator Campaign Director at the Center for Food Safety. So we're going to get a little overview and update on the state of pollinators here in the U.S. Um, and maybe touch a little bit on um, them more broadly around the world. Before we jump in with Todd, I want to give just a quick announcement. Um, if folks have been following the Craig Watts story, the Purdue poultry farmer down in North Carolina who is suing Purdue, there are some developments in that story. Uh, Fusion Network at, at fusion.net has just released an extended video kind of documenting uh, Craig's farm and his work um, with a quite salacious title Cockfight Meet the Farmer, blowing the whole. Let's see, let me, let me start from the top. I got. I got tangled in it. Uh, it's Cockfight, f- Meet the Farmer, Blowing the Whistle on Big Chicken. Um, so you can definitely learn more about that campaign and, and Craig's work and the pending lawsuit and, and continue to follow that story. He was a guest on the Farm Report from episode 219. So check that out if you haven't already. And we will continue to keep you posted on that conversation but for now, let's, uh, let's look a little bit more locally here. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the show today.
1: Thank you for having
2: me. I was like um, start, starting out with a little bit of a mouthful here, but I think it's all, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: we're, we're doing all right. It's actually a little snowy up here in the Hudson Valley today, so glad to hear the sun's coming our way.
2: Yeah, I'm like, I'll, I'll like kind of blow it in your general direction to the extent that I can. we um, will take it. <laughs> so Hudson Valley Agribusiness Development Corporation, give it give us a lowdown. Can you, you know, you've been their executive director for a bit now. What is kind of the purview of your work through them and what's getting you excited? What's keeping you up at nights? Give us the lowdown.
1: Sure. So starting from the beginning, we were actually born of an American Farmland Trust report. Uh, often studies and reports, you know, they can sit on a shelf and get dusty. But uh, we were working with Jerry Cosgrove, who was the Northeast director at the time, and I was working in traditional economic development and community development in the Hudson Valley um, in Columbia County. Columbia County economic development and community development often Uh, revolves around agriculture or agriculture is uh, integrated into those issues for Columbia County. And the American Farmland Trust Report looked at challenges of the Hudson Valley from a local foods and uh, farm perspective and uh, came up with some recommendations, uh, a need for a regional entity to be focusing on agriculture as economic development, um, a need for a strategic plan, Uh, that included agriculture with other economic development initiatives, uh, technical assistance, um, business planning, strategy development, market feasibility study for agriculture and ag-related, ag-dependent business that was on par with traditional economic development offerings, and then uh, the creation and enhancement of dedicated capital funding for the food system and, and farm-related business,
2: <laughs> and I was just saying, show me the money. Yeah, I'm always like coming around to like, where's the cash?
1: You got it. So that that's really what we were born of, and uh, we now represent uh, seven counties in the Hudson Valley. We work directly with either the county economic development offices or the arms that are. Um, Uh, responsible for economic development in the county. And we work to integrate uh, the programs and the offerings of economic development from a county, state, and federal level into the food system.
2: So you guys are obviously, you know, your purview, you need to be kind of good at, I feel like a lot of different things, but also just kind of know what's going on in a lot of different kind of areas. Cause I think for your work to be successful, um, as someone who is essentially kind of a, a, a connector and someone who's ensuring kind of the, a streamlined process and quality, you need to be up on kind of what's happening in in a bunch of different areas. So how do you, how does your group kind of stay in tune or how do you put a team together that keeps your finger on the pulse? Of thing, you know, issues from like what, are, what does the market look like? What are people interested in buying from the region, and also what are people producing, or kind of the cyclical changes of you know the ag industry.
1: Right, uh, you hit the nail on the head, and your observation was uh, very astute. Um, value chain coordination or value chain facilitating, which is some of the terminology that's come about since we started Hudson Valley Agribusiness. Uh, is is really a dynamic role in the food system uh, as you mentioned you're really trying to stay attuned to production to the farmers needs and the farmers challenges and then you're also trying to stay attuned to what the market will support or what what the gaps are in getting the product to the market and then there's a lot of points in between and you also need to be able to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of the alphabet soup of federal funding, state funding, local level support, and one of the neatest kind of most exciting aspects to what's happening in the New York City food shed and the Hudson Valley and the Northeast are these other funding sources, um, the PRI program related investment, the MRI, the mission related investment and, you know, some non-traditional capital sources that are entering into the food system and wanting to play a role and complement banks and other traditional lending and grant programs, uh, it's a really exciting time to be involved in this work.
2: So, why the Hudson Valley? I mean, obviously, there. You know, if you're looking at the the region, there's uh, what I'm looking at the report here or the the press release here. It says that there, you know, 18 percent of the 11 county region's land is constituting farmland. So, obviously, there's a lot of kind of volume of land in egg production, but, um, you know, how did you end up in the, the Hudson Valley region and, and is what's happening with your team there being kind of like mimicked or was it bouncing off things that are happening in different parts of New York state or did you have to look outside of New York for kind of inspiration and guidance when you were setting up the kind of systems or even now when you're kind of troubleshooting?
1: Sure. So the Hudson Valley is in a unique position geographically, uh, being a gateway to the New York metro market. Uh, it's uh, not only for the farmers and the food companies that are located within the footprint, but also as a keystone connecting uh, the farmers in northern New York and central and western New York, accessing that market. But we also sit uh, at the crossroads for the Boston and New England markets, as well as um Philadelphia and the Mid-Atlantic. Um, if you, we have a map and a program update that we just, uh, published and it's available on our website and it's called an Eater's Map. And we look at the Hudson Valley being the center of about a five hour radius as far as a driving access area. And you're looking at about 60 million mouths, um, over 20 million households in that five hour radius. Uh, it's really an epicenter to market accessibility. So some of that is making sure our farmers who grow here have direct access to the markets. But it's also creating the infrastructure, like the press release was highlighting, so that the processing and distribution outlets uh, service a much larger market and service a much larger um, footprint of access for farmers and producers.
2: And I want to touch um, a little bit more on the Kingston Food Hub in just one second. But before we get there, you know, you mentioned the proximity of the region to so many major uh, metropolitan areas. Why, you know, why is it important to keep that area in agriculture? I mean, I'm sure there is development pressure kind of uh, up the wazoo. Like, can you talk a little bit about why folks who who reside in New York City or Brooklyn, like myself, have a real stake in the Hudson Valley, continuing to be a strong kind of agriculture region?
1: Absolutely. Uh, First and foremost is food security. Um, While we do have the technology and the uh, fossil fuels and resources to move food from anywhere in the world into our homes and onto our plates, Um, You know, logic prevails, and I think ultimately uh, environmental concerns, resources, and um, economic concerns will push us to returning to the more regionalized food systems uh, that we relied on uh, at different times of our civilization and culture. So first and foremost, you have that, the adjacent area, and it's not just the Hudson Valley. You have New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania and, and very, very uh, fertile, well-developed agricultural regions uh, within close proximity to the New York Metro area in the Northeast. Um, you also have uh, areas that still receive rain and water. albeit be sometimes, uh, you know, in 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 uh, amounts that are too much and a bit overwhelming. You know, we've had some hundred-year storms kind of back to back over the last decade. But the bottom line is, we're still receiving and we still have the ability to grow food and, and receive that rain. But Really looking at it from a community viewpoint, um, we recognize that um, agriculture and food systems are really about rural-urban relationships. And Hudson Valley Agribusiness has taken it upon ourselves to start highlighting this rural-urban opportunity. And it's not just about food or uh, products flowing into New York City or the the metro areas of our country. It's also about the capital and the human interaction that happens there. It's not a single direction flow. It's actually reciprocal. Our rural areas rely on the capital and rely on goods and services that come from outside of our footprint. And so we really want to highlight and strengthen that reciprocal relationship so that we recognize, it's not just about a pretty view. It's not just about um, having somewhere to go on the weekend and and getting away from the urban jungle. Um, it goes much deeper than that, and it's very systemic, both from a cultural and economic capital perspective.
2: Yeah, and I think I I just feel like you cannot emphasize that connection and that interdependency enough. Um, I think it's something that we. Um, you know, we're strong. We're definitely stronger together. And I think we also get to eat better together. Um, well, Absolutely. Let, let's shift gears here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Kingston Food Hub, you know, kind of exciting. Some some big figures coming out of there. I, I'm looking here that throughout the 2014 harvest, the Food Hub purchased and processed more than 200,000 pounds of New York Farm products in order to fulfill the contract. Um, And that they also were the hub that processed the Blue Hill savory yogurts. Um, I'm actually quite a fan of those. Um, But I want to, um, before we get into kind of some of the nuts and bolts that are outlined here, when you're talking about a food hub for your team, can we be just clear with listeners kind of what we mean by that?
1: Yeah, that's uh, kind of fuzzy, depending on the situation, and that term is used a lot and is increasingly kind of growing in use. For this situation, the Food Hub represents two private businesses, Hudson Valley Harvest and Farm-to-Table Co-Packers. They are two independent facilities and businesses on the same campus of a former IBM manufacturing facility in Kingston, New York. The facility is known as Tech City during this adaptive reuse phase. And Farm to Table Co-Packers is a processing facility that offers packing services for farms and non-farm private label businesses. Hudson Valley Harvest is actually a client of Farm to Table Co-Packers. They have farmer product uh, processed there. But they do much more than that. They also are a distributor of product that is processed in other parts of the state and fresh product that comes directly from farmers. Um, so for us, the food hub is really kind of this cluster of these two businesses working together, complementing one another and finding um, new reciprocal uh, synergies to access market for New York farms.
2: And I don't want to dwell on this too much, but can you maybe give us some examples of, of what were some of the challenges getting the, this kind of work off the ground? What were the kind of roadblocks or snakes that you hit, and, and how did you kind of found, find solutions or, and help people kind of push through some initial hurdles?
1: Sure. First and foremost, for us, it's finding an entrepreneur. And in this case, Paul Allward and Sam Ullman were two of the original founders of Hudson Valley Harvest uh Jim Highland uh who's president and ceo of farm to table co-packers was really the entrepreneurial spirit and um not just the driving force but also putting his own personal capital into the project. Uh Jim had a uh brand Winter Sun Farms which some of your listeners may be familiar with uh that uh in the 2006-2007 range was kind of a frozen food CSA with transparently identified packages um, into the New York City area primarily. Um, the challenge was where he was having the farm product frozen during the summer, during the harvest, and then stored to be delivered in the off-season to his subscribers, um, went out of business. And so Jim worked uh, with uh, several other people to start up and brand the Startup Farned Table Co-Packers. Uh, Farmer Table Co-Packers is really a, a neat story in that, yes, you have Winter Sun Farm brand, yes, you have Hudson Valley Harvest brand there, and both of those buy product from New York farmers and label it Winter Sun or Hudson Valley Harvest, but transparently identify on the package the farm's name and location that the product came from. So Amy Hepworth Tomatoes, Kenny Miglorelli Apples. Um, but Farm Table co-packers go so much further because they'll actually also co-pack and give product back to a farmer to sell directly, either at their farm stand, at their farm market, through their own CSA. And then the last really unique opportunity of Farm Table co-packers is they will use non-farm brands, Rick's Picks, uh, Spacey Tracy's Pickles, um, and they will actually buy New York Farm product because, uh, savory hill another example or a uh, blue hill savory yogurt another example of making sure that the non-farm label knows where the product's coming from and that it is being grown and produced right in new york or the northeast or the proximity that's dictated by the value of the brand
2: so kind of some you know initial snags like turning into new opportunities and also it sounds very much like meeting uh, producers where they're at, kind of providing the services that they kind of want or need to, to serve their customers and facilitate their business and, and less kind of making folks kind of bend to one way. I mean, would that be a correct kind of characterization?
1: Yeah, some of the uh, unique features of farm-to-table co-packers is um, on the scale of most farms, getting their products back in a jar as a sauce or getting their product back individually frozen in bags um it's pretty expensive uh that equipment's expensive the um, manual labor and handling of it is pretty expensive but when you have a facility like farm to table that is actually servicing SUNY contracts and the Chartwell contract that we talked about you know 10 New York schools eight schools uh colleges and universities in uh Connecticut you start gaining efficiencies in volume and so Jim and farm to table co-packers and Paul and Hudson Valley Harvest are able to tailor to some of the local farms' needs and economies because they're working in these larger uh, market opportunities that can offset and gain some efficiencies in scale.
2: Well, we just have a few moments left here, and I and I want to talk quickly um, about how it's – How like the governor's office, I feel like, you know, Cuomo's name's at the top of your release, and it's definitely we've been seeing, um, I mean, here at the studio, a a number of press releases um, as related to kind of innovations or investments in the agriculture or the food sector coming down from the governor's office. What difference does it make to your work to have support at that level?
1: Yeah, it's a great two-way street. We've developed a wonderful relationship along with peer groups like Scenic Hudson, American Farmland Trust, um, the Local Economies Project, working with the governor's regional council process that he's established. Um, I'm a, a voting member and on the executive team of the Capital Region Economic Development Council. So having an administration, both the governor but also his appointments, our Commissioner of Agriculture, Richard Ball, who is a well-respected vegetable farmer, and I've had the pleasure of working with side-by-side for years on um, Farm Bureau trips and local food projects like Corbin Hill. You know, we really are starting to have um, a strong collaborative spirit with Albany. And then the other part that I would mention is just how uh, Albany and New York City have renewed the connection, and that there's now an office, you know, reopened in Brooklyn for Ag and Markets. Empire State Development, which is the economic development arm of New York State's government, has opened up craft beverage opportunities and um, funding uh, competitive uh, food hubs in other parts of the state. So it, it's a it's a new time where we actually have an audience with the governor and the governor and his team are asking what are the needs where's the capital that we need to focus uh to change uh and and benefit these local food system opportunities
2: well todd i know folks can visit the website www.hvadc.org to learn more about your work but what's the best way for them to be supporting um, what you're doing and producers and farmers in the hudson valley
1: well, currently, uh, Scenic Hudson, American Farmland Trust, Open Space, and many of the land conservancies in the Hudson Valley are working to support the governor's proposal of um, appropriating a standalone $20 million amount to preserve farmland in the Hudson Valley in the upcoming 2015 2016 state budget. Um, if you go to Scenic Hudson's website or American Farmland Trust's website, there's some um, links to actually how to let state officials know that this is important, not just to the Hudson Valley, but to the food system and the food shed that relies on the Hudson Valley, and that it will actually set a precedent so that we can launch programs like this for other areas that have high pressure, like Long Island, um, some of the Finger Lakes areas. And, you know, it can actually bring New York to the forefront of farmland conservation, It begins with preserving the soil, but we also have to work on the food hubs and the distribution and the market access. So by recognizing that farmland conservation is uh, critical to the economic development perspective of local food systems, we'll all be sending a really strong message to our leadership.
2: Todd, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure connecting, and I look forward to having you back soon.
1: Many thanks for the opportunities. I always enjoy working together and can't wait to see you up here in the Hudson Valley again.
2: Awesome. All right. Well, folks, hang tight. We're going to take a quick station break. And we're, when we come back, we'll be on the line with Larissa Walker, the Pollinator Campaign Director at the Center for Food Safety. Hang tight. Hang tight. Thank you
1: This program is brought to you by Underground Meats. We're proud to count Underground Meats as a business member of Heritage Radio Network. Located in downtown Madison, Wisconsin, Underground Meats creates handcrafted salami and cured meats. They source from the nation's most quality pasture-raised heritage pigs and goats. The Underground Collective also offers a variety of classes and workshops. We encourage you to visit undergroundmeats.com to learn more. You can also get your own Underground Meats care package by becoming a VIP member of Heritage Radio Network. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate for more. We are students at Girls Prep, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network.
2: And we're back. We are joined in the second half of the show by Larissa Walker. Larissa is the Pollinator Campaign Director at the Center for Food Safety, joining us from down in D.C. Larissa, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. So before we before we jump in, I wonder if you can tell us why, at the Center for Food Safety, is it important to have someone whose work is committed to pollinators?
3: Well, Center for Food Safety, we're a national nonprofit organization, and we work to protect public health and the environment by, um, by curbing the impacts of industrial agriculture and instead promoting sustainable forms of agriculture and organic agriculture. And the pollinator program um, really took off a few years ago here when uh, a number of pollinator species started suffering adverse impacts from uses of certain pesticides. So it's, it's quite relevant to our mission and also our member interests to protect these critical species.
2: So when we're talking about pollinators, what are we talking about?
3: So we're talking about honeybees, many wild bees like bumblebees, monarch butterflies, birds, bats beetles. I mean, there are a number of species that that pollinate, but the the primary pollinators are are definitely bees, whether managed or or wild.
2: And so when you're kind of like dividing uh, your work time up or focus, figuring out like what campaigns you're going to focus on for the year, how do you kind of create a a hierarchy? Um, You know, what amount of your work is kind of offensive and what is kind of defensive reacting to things that are kind of happening out in the world more broadly?
3: Yeah, I'd say it's a pretty even split for the most part. I mean, I think a lot of what we're doing is, is somewhat responsive to what's actually happening out in the, the agricultural arena um, and what's happening on the ground, such as pesticide issues. So we are responding to a lot of concerns that, that are arising from those issues, but we're also doing a lot of, um, you know, proactive work with outreach and encouraging the public to take, you know, really great steps to help us protect these species and raise awareness about the issue. So I'd say it's pretty evenly divided.
2: So I feel like, you know, kind of in the media generally, for the last couple of years we've been hearing these dire reports, you know, honeybees are in danger, um, monarch butterflies are on the brink of extinction. Are things as as dire as that? I mean, what is the landscape as we sit, you know, here in 2015? Mm Mm-hmm.
3: Things are definitely dire. I mean, the the situation that's occurring right now with with honeybees in particular is quite concerning because they are such efficient pollinators for many of the foods that we rely on. It's um, estimated that pollinators, and specifically bees, are responsible for about one in every three bites of food we eat. So the fact that their numbers are declining as as rapidly as they are is concerning. Um, But beyond population declines, Many species of pollinators, such as bees and butterflies, also just are suffering from poor health, and they're just not as um, efficient in pollinating, and they're not as productive as they once were. So the, the loss of honeybees has, has definitely um, hit a peak here in the U.S. We, we definitely are seeing commercial beekeepers and, and urban and backyard beekeepers reporting alarmingly high overwintering losses and losses of their colonies all year round, and that's a problem. It's, it's very challenging for beekeepers to keep up with um, pollination demands and keep their hives healthy. And with monarch butterflies, I mean, that situation is also quite concerning. We've seen monarch butterfly, butterfly populations decline by over 90% in under 20 years.
2: Wow, It's, it's really, really big. And are these, you know, are the kind of issues as they relate to the declines of populations and kind of reduction in the health of the pollinators, are these things that we're seeing specifically here in the U.S., or is this a global issue?
3: It's a global issue. I mean, this has been, particularly with honeybees, we've seen a lot of countries um, really look at this issue closely over the last couple of decades and even more so in the last few years with respect to a connection to pesticide, Uh, Use, And that's been a real big um, issue lately in the European Union. In fact, uh, about a year ago, they they took action to suspend certain uses of industrial um, pesticides uh, because of concerns for honeybee losses. So it's definitely a global issue. We need pollinators all over the world (laughs) for our food supply and also for our ecosystem health.
2: So I want to get something clear for folks. Like, where do bees come from? I mean, without being like too elementary, um, w- you know, where does that process begin? Kind of, how are they kind of grown? Or is it? There, are there like bee or honeybee farms? Um, what's what's the kind of source of honeybees?
3: <laughs> I think the ultimate source of honeybees might be little uh, off from that, but would be the beekeepers. But, you know, honeybees are not a native bee species to North America. North America is home to over 4,000 species of wild bees, but um, honeybees were brought to the U.S. in about the 1600s, and we've been managing honeybees ever since then. Um, So there are, um, you know, honeybees that are produced. There are a number of beekeepers who are uh, queen producers, and so they'll produce queens, and those queens can be, you know, purchased by commercial beekeepers, and then they can, they can uh, use the queens and introduce them into their hives. Um, but honeybees also survive on their own in the U.S. now. They have been introduced here, so there are wild honeybee hives that, that exist without beekeepers' assistance, but most of the, the honeybees here in the U.S. are, are you know, um, kept and managed by beekeepers.
2: I didn't know that. I didn't know that honeybees weren't. I guess, like, my assumption was, like, they were just always here and around, and then someone, like, <laughs> rounded a few up, and we went from there. But
3: um. Yeah, I think honeybees often would like to say they steal the pollinator spotlight because everyone's most familiar with them. But, in fact, there's there's all these really incredible species of wild bees that are native to, to the U.S. and North America, and they often don't get the, the credit or attention that they deserve because they're quite... Um, impressive pollinators as well and equally important to our food supply.
2: So when you're looking across a geographic region as large as the United States with so many different kind of cl- climates and, and regions and areas, are we seeing these decline the, the declines are happening kind of equally across the board or declines happening in concentrated areas when you're looking to kind of analyze why this is happening um you know I feel like for me i I, I want to know kind of where it's happening first, and then hopefully that would inform why, but maybe it doesn't work like that
3: sure no it's a great question, and I think one of one of the issues we have um, in the u s is that we we aren't we aren't um actively tracking the population status of wild bees. It's very hard to do that. Um, We don't have scientists on the ground who are all over the country looking at what is going on with, you know, these thousands of species of wild bees here. But we do have beekeepers, and they are our our best kind of barometers for what is the health and population of um, honeybees in the U.S. And so... Across the country, there are beekeepers, you know, in every area of the U.S. who are experiencing losses and and poor colony health, but, you know, more so what we've seen in the last decade or so has been a lot of beekeepers reporting um, abnormal losses or acute bee kills where their their honeybees are just dying outright when they are near agricultural fields, Um, and that would be usually the result of a, a pesticide, you know, related bee kill.
2: So, is it why is it not as simple as just saying like, okay, hey, stop using this pesticide?
3: <laughs> I think one of the reasons it's not that simple is because a lot of farmers have begun to rely on on, on certain you know pesticides as a tool, um, and you know, one of the most concerning aspects to a particular type of pesticide that's been kind of in the spotlight with respect to bee kills and poor pollinator health has been a a class of systemic insecticides called neonicotinoids or neonics for short. And those chemicals are actually coated onto a lot of the seeds that we use for annual field crops. So the majority of uh, corn, canola, cotton, wheat, soybean seeds, they're all coated with this insecticide. So a lot of times, you know, farmers don't even have a choice whether or not to use these chemicals. Um, It's just, that's how we're selling these 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 products now.
2: So, what do we do?
3: <laughs> I think one thing we do is um, make sure there's a lot of attention around the issue, and we educate people. Um, another thing we're doing is is working um, on this issue in a in a legal arena. So, we Center for Food Safety has filed a lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency for failure to protect honeybees and other pollinator species from the harms of these chemicals because there is a wealth of scientific evidence. I mean, it's just skyrocketed the amount of, of peer-reviewed scientific studies that have come out in the last decade or so which indicate harms from these specific chemicals, the neonics, to pollinators and, and bees in particular. So there, are, there is legal action happening, which is great. There are members of Congress who have raised concerns about this, and there's been legislation introduced to suspend uses of these particularly harmful chemicals, um, and there's been a lot of grassroots support and activism across the country trying to educate people to avoid using these chemicals in their backyards and gardens, um, and also encourage you know, public lands within their communities to stop using these products as well. We use them everywhere. It's the most uh, widely used insecticides in the world.
2: So, no small task now are the, <laughs> no. are the are the monarchs are they susceptible in the same way that the honeybees are to these pesticides? Is it an overlapping issue or is it a different thing that is causing the in the frankly insane decline in in, in the monarchs
3: definitely it, 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 it is an insane decline um, there's a little bit of overlap, so the same insecticides that are harming bees. Um, there's been some preliminary research uh, that's come out, actually some just in the last week or so, that has indicated that these are actually harmful to monarch larvae um, and also to um, the longevity of monarch butterflies. But that, that's preliminary research, and there does need to be more um, on neonics and the impact monarchs. But the monarch issue more broadly is, is actually a little bit different, but still within the, the frame of problems with our industrial agriculture system, and that's the issue of herbicides, so particularly um, glyphosate, which is also known as Roundup as the brand name, has been detrimental to milkweed populations, um, specifically within the the Midwest um, area, the Corn Belt region, where a lot of the eastern population of monarch butterflies breed, and that's the population that we're all very familiar with and love to watch as they migrate south to Mexico. Incredible species, but the the herbicide issue and wiping out milkweed plants has really been the the big issue that's facing monarch butterflies right now and still is.
2: So, what do we lose? What do we lose if tomorrow we wake up and we have no bees and we have no monarch butterfly? What what's at risk here?
3: There there are a lot of things at risk. I think the first and foremost, um, our food supply is at risk. And and I don't say that we wouldn't have any food to eat because that's not true. We don't you know pollinators are not responsible for every single crop out there, but they are responsible for giving us a really healthy and diverse um, food supply. So many of our favorite fruits and vegetables um, would not be available to us, certainly in the quantities that they are now. That's concerning, but beyond that, they're also um, you know, critical to a healthy and functioning ecosystem. We you know, think of honeybees and even monarch butterflies as indicator species. So if they are not doing well, it's usually indicative of a larger environmental problem, and there are probably many other species that we're not even aware of that are suffering as well from many of the same problems. Um, and that's that's just not good all around.
2: So kind of in some ways they are like a stand-in for the canary in the coal mine.
3: Yes, and we, we actually, um, there's a, a renowned monarch butterfly scientist, Dr. Lincoln Brower, who has uh, a term I'm quite fond of in calling the monarch butterfly, the canary in the cornfield. So I think it's it's quite spot on in this case.
2: Well, I want to ask you about something. So I, and and I'm not sure that you're going to be able to speak to this. So if you're not, no problem, but I was talking with um, Steve Wood of poverty lane orchards and Farnham Hill ciders, um, you know, an apple grower and cider producer here in the Northeast uh, about the Arctic apple, the, the first, the world's first kind of genetically engineered apple that ha- has just been approved and, you know, potentially may come to market in the coming years. And I'm wondering um, how, if, if that type of news kind of impacts your work with pollinators and, and how you kind of hear that and respond to it and, and what your thoughts are.
3: Yeah, well, the, the Arctic apple is something that we've definitely been concerned about here at, at CFS. You know, we've been tracking the the kind of move of that through the regulatory process. But Um, You know, I think there are a lot of concerns with with many elements of our industrial agricultural system, and genetic engineering is is one of them. And a lot of cases, you know, it's it's problematic because genetically engineered crops go hand-in-hand with increased pesticide use. And that's certainly been the case with genetically engineered Roundup-ready crops like corn and soybeans, um, those crops have really been what's led to a big spike in the use of glyphosate and other herbicides, Roundup, um, on corn soybean fields. And it's that, that you know, crop and, and those uses that's wiped out milkweed species. So genetic engineering in general, you know, when it causes increases in pesticides, we have a lot of concerns for that. Um, but the, the, the Arctic apple. I mean, there are a lot of there a lot of uncertainties there. We we really don't know. You know, this is you know a type of genetic engineering where there's not a lot of science showing the safety of these um, types of technologies, and that's that's something that I think we should be concerned about.
2: Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. I, would, I just, you know, was thinking because we had Steve on the show last week, wanted to hear your thoughts. Well, I know folks, if they want to learn more about the work, um, they can visit the website centerforfoodsafety.org. Um, they can click, um, you know, through to the pollinator section, but you guys also do work in many other areas. Um, for the pollinator campaign specifically, what's the best way for people to get involved right now or support your work?
3: The best way to get involved is to sign some of the petitions we have going on right now. Fish and Wildlife Service is currently considering listing monarch butterflies as a threatened species under the Endangered Species Act, so it's really critical that we get a lot of public support for that action, and you can sign a petition on our website to do so. Um, it's also really important that people contact their members of Congress. You know, there, There's a support for these issues in Congress, thankfully, and the more that they hear from their constituents that pollinators are something people are concerned about. Um, that's great. So I definitely encourage that and go out and plant some pollinator-friendly habitat. Just make sure you don't use any pesticides on it. <laughs>
2: um, well, because I know you're located down in DC, this is a question I was um, asking Todd, who was with us in the first half of the show. I'm wondering if, if, there are particular legislators that you would like to shine a light on, um, for their leadership on this issue.
3: Definitely. I think um, Representatives John Conyers and Earl Blumenauer have been just incredible in terms of the steps they've taken to protect pollinator species. So um, a big thanks to both of them for introducing the Saving America's Pollinators Act. Um, so they're definitely kind of that's the the gold standard for um, pollinator protection right now on the Hill.
2: Yeah, I think it's like one of those interesting things as we're thinking more and more about, um, you know, how our elected officials are shaping and influencing our food supply. I definitely want to take note to point out folks who are supporting the work and then for folks who are maybe working in the opposite direction. But regardless, Larissa, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to um, join us and inform us briefly on the work that you're doing and on the current state of the pollinator uh, landscape. I really appreciate you having us um, as pleasure. part of your day. Thank
3: you for having me on. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks to uh, both of my excellent guests today. Uh, That was Todd Erling at the top of the show. He is the executive director at the Hudson Valley Agribusiness Development Corporation. Um, You can find them at HVADC.org. And then we were just speaking with Larissa from the Pollinator Campaign. Their website is centerforfoodsafety.org. And definitely check out Fusion.net to check out the video with Craig Watts, a poultry farmer from episode 219 of the Farm Report. This show, like all 39 of our weekly programs, is available for free. You can find all of our great programming by visiting www.heritageradionetwork.org. If you follow us on iTunes or Stitcher, please subscribe. Always great for the shows to have those subscriber numbers up there. Leave a review. Shoot me an email to Aaron at heritageradionetwork.org. If there's something you'd like to hear more of or less of, I would love to hear from you. And then you can, of course, follow me on Twitter. It's Aaron underscore Fairbanks. I look forward to hearing from you and definitely hope you'll be tuning in next week for another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.